Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Dolby Institute podcast. We're continuing our conversations with colorists. This is part two of a really uh, interesting deep dive into Dolby Vision that we started a few weeks ago. And uh, I'm pleased to have the, the, the Dolby team back to take us back into the, the intricate world of Dolby Vision and HDR. Uh, and we're gonna be led on this journey by Tom Graham, who is uh, my colleague at Dolby, and he's the, uh, the head of Dolby Vision content enablement. So really glad to have the team back and, and, and glad to give this platform for another really um, deep dive conversation into Dolby Vision. Tom, it's, this, is, this is all you, take it away. Awesome, Glenn. Thanks again for the intro and excited to be here for episode number two. We had a great time doing episode number one, really talking about the history and sort of the background of our three colorists who work at Dolby. And uh, let's just take a quick minute to reintroduce you to them before we dive into really a much deeper dive on how you can work in HDR or wide color gamut, how you think about your approach to it, um, and really some tips some thoughts around uh, uh, takeaways that you can walk away with and actually put to use. So um, let me introduce the colorists uh, quickly. We have Shane, Greg, and Rick. Go ahead, Shane, you do your quick intro. I'm Shane Ruggieri. I'm a colorist for Dolby. Been working here since about 2010 and uh, just love to work with these beautiful images. Yeah, hi, I'm Greg Hamlin. working at Dolby now about uh, six years and uh, really enjoying doing Dolby Vision grading and uh, helping uh, uh, creatives and uh, DPs and directors uh, become familiar with the format and to utilize it to tell their stories. Hi, I'm Rick Taylor. Uh, I've been with Dolby for about eight years and um, been there uh, for the, the dawn of PQ. And, uh, and we've, uh, my main job is to create tools and that's what we've been doing uh, at Burbank. That's great. Well, again, I'm super thrilled to be working with you guys on a daily basis. You show me great things I learn from you all the time and and have a lot of fun doing it. So, um, so you know, where, where we kind of left, left off was really the, the history of sort of that birthing of PQ, as you mentioned, Rick, working with monitors like the Pulsar, and then getting into Dolby Vision and understanding um, how to create, how you created HDR imagery and then the, the tools around uh, uh, the workflow and the metadata. So we'll start with, um, I think, just a conversation around, um, you know, as we meet new colorists and we work with new people, how do you take out their SDR Rec 709 brain that has been they've been working with for, say, the last uh, 20 years or so, and how do you put in a new HDR wide color gamut brain that's more open to... Um, sort of extending highlights um, and, and, you know, not maybe crushing or the blacks or clipping the skies. How do you um, how do you change that mindset? And uh, Rick, jump in and give us your, your starting point, your starting thoughts. Well, you know, it, uh, first of all, it depends on how open the colorist is to doing it. If, if he feels like he's trapped into doing it, you have to use a crowbar. And uh, <laughs> if, if he... Uh, if he's open to it, then um, you can easily show the colorist where to, you know, where he can create in that space because the space is really big. Both color and, and luminance are so big that you can make whatever kind of a picture you want. And, um, you know, of course, the client's going to be the, you know, 
the the stop there wherever you wherever they want it. But uh, but to realize that you have that kind of space, you really have to get used to working in it. So um, put something up that you're familiar with, and and then push yourself is usually a, a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Greg, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, I think Rick and Shane would agree with me that uh, it takes you a while to get used to looking at HDR, uh, and and it takes some playing around with it for a bit. I know a lot of colors don't have that opportunity. They're thrown right into, you know, here's the tools and learn this today and next week you're doing a show. But um, I think uh, as one spends more time doing grading and looking at the images uh, and you get used to that, then you become more familiar and you get more confident about how to use the tools and where to go with the image. Uh, And then as far as directors and DPs, if I'm working with somebody, I'll ask them if this is their first time seeing or doing an HDR grade. And if that's the case, we'll sometimes show them that fantasy flights footage and uh, just to get their eyes used to it. And then the next thing is usually to show proof that we can take their image and we're not going to screw it up. We're not going to break it. Uh, and to to show sensitivity and awareness that they've worked hard to create the kind of aesthetic for the, the story they're telling. And then to show them how they can take advantage of HDR to... Uh, to do that even further. Shane. I think one of the things that I, I try to do when I show someone HDR for the first time is I like to get my light meter out and I like to show them the real values of just things that they're used to and and, and show them how bright reality is and show them the different ratios. Uh, and why I do that is I say, look, this, this is where you live. This is the stuff you're familiar with. These are the right light levels that you're familiar with. Um, and so are the audiences. And so you don't need to be afraid of just because it's bright, it isn't going to resonate because you're, you're creating a, a response from them. And, and to take them around and give them these different light levels, you see their eyes, you know, go, oh, okay, now I'm starting to get it. These are very bright levels. These are various levels um, in the world around me. Now, I don't have to create that reality, but I can then have some sense of, okay, I'm relating it to this. I'm relating it to that. And, and you can bring the audience closer to reality or pull them away from reality. And that's a new realm that HDR provides you that you don't get an SDR. And so in the world of, of making that transition for, for you guys, it's, it seems like um, it's a good foundation to build on SDR. But, uh, y- you know, in that world of SDR where you automatically feel like you have to start fixing things and bringing the dynamic range down using power windows or keys or, or, or your normal tricks of the trade in SDR, you don't have to start there in HDR, right? You, you actually can put the image up and start working in um, a logarithmic space or PQ directly. And it's actually easier, right? It start it starts out where you're not fighting so much and you, and you, you almost have to tell your your fellow colorists that information, right? Would you say anybody jump in on that one? Right. Well, take for example when you import, say, raw footage, some Ari Alexa raw Ari raw footage. Um, we're used to seeing on our seven or nine monitors a very flat looking image because you've got six stops and you're looking at a fourteen stop image, so you're just looking at a cross section of it. Uh, whereas if you lay it into, say, a Flanders um, or a Sony, you know, X three hundred all of a sudden that image comes alive immediately and, and the ratios are there and it's a much better looking image right off the bat and allows you to quickly get in and you're not having to fight the ratios or fight to, to get 
you know, this 14 down into six or seven. Um, Rick, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the things is, uh, you know, for 30 some years, I was squeezing everything into this space. Right. Mm-hmm. And film, film as well, because it had more dynamic range than, than video. And, and so um, your first job is to get it centered in, in gamma, right. Where you want it. And then, fix all the things that you had to break to make the picture fit into that space, right? So at this point, um, when you get camera raw and you, and you put it up, it's, it's uh, now your decision uh, is to how do I, how do I portray this, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not, how do I make this work in this space? It's wow. Where do I go with it? Yeah. It's more creative, less fix it. Right. Would you agree with that, Greg? Yeah, it's definitely, it definitely just feels like it's easier to put the exposure where you really want it to be. Um, it's just very minor tweaks back to the curve and, you know, you've got nice blacks with rich detail and you've got highlights and, and good rich midtones and so forth that fall into place real easily as opposed to pushing it around and, you know, working it like kneading it like dough to try to get it to, to look attractive. Interesting. And can you all just tell me, um, in the sense of what your timeline working space is that you find suits you best to create HDR imagery? Now, I know there's a lot of controversy controversy about working sort of in PQ or working in camera space or, you know, so maybe just take a minute and walk us through your thought process there. Rick, we'll, we'll start with you on this one and then we'll go back from Greg to Shane. Uh, well, you know, I obviously prefer uh, to work in uh, in the EOTF, right? So I, I like to work in PQ and use the uh, the color journey, you know, either in uh, Baselight or, or Resolve to uh, put it in that space. So you take it out of camera space, uh, you know, bring it into a, a PQ timeline and operate that way. I feel that, that gives me the best range to work with. And, the, and, and you like how the controls feel in that PQ as opposed to, say, a, a gamma SDR space, right? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, you're, you know, you're grading in log when mm-hmm. basically in PQ. Um, you're, you're in a log space. And, and uh, if you're used to working in a log space, it, it, it's uh, the right feel. You get okay. everything you want. Uh, if, you're working, if you're used to working in gamma, you have to kind of get used to that working in, in log space. Greg, how about you? Yeah, I found, you know, sort of transitioning from working in gamma into um, PQ pretty quick and easy. I mean, it wasn't, didn't take long before the controls felt natural and I felt like I could put things where I wanted them to go. Um, And uh, it's, uh, you know, so I, I work the same way in PQ and uh, I just find that that works better for me. It's more efficient for me. Okay. Shane, what's your timeline working space of choice? I actually will bounce between P3, PQ, depending on the delivery requirements, or I'll, I'll work in the actual camera uh, timeline color space. Um, Resolve limits the color space in that timeline to that choice. And sometimes um, a client, like I had a client react or ask to to work in the color space of the of the camera. And we were able to do that very seamlessly. It wasn't an issue. Um, and so I feel like you, you can work in almost any of those color spaces in there, just understand what's happening to it, what limitations you're going to have. 
And ultimately, you're, you can get the feel, you can adjust the knobs to make it feel kind of right. That's cool. And then in terms of what color gamut do you prefer to work in? Maybe you guys could just take a few seconds. And now I know I know a lot of that's studio dependent per se, but but do you have a preference? Do you like P3 or Rec 2020? Yeah, I mean, really, it's about deliverable and also your monitoring. Um, if you trust your monitor and you can work in 2020, if you're familiar with it, and I mean, I don't think any monitor hits full 2020 and each one does it in a in a slightly different way, a little bit blue here and a little less red here or whatever it is. Um, I think if you understand your monitor and understand where it lacks and you can develop images and you can see the images and your client approves the images, I think those working spaces are... Um, I think you can get away with just working in pretty much any of those, in my opinion. Okay. Greg? Yeah, I think just because of the fact that I, I want to be able to trust that I'm seeing everything on the monitor, I, I would I tend to work in P3, even if the deliverable is 2020, and then do a you know P3 limited. And do the conversion at the end, right? Right, right. Uh, Rick? Um, well, since currently, I mean, I like to work in, in 2020 and in wide color gamut on the... Uh, on the projector. Uh, however, their primaries are all different from each other and every monitor's primaries are different. Uh, so if we're doing something that's going to go out of house, unless it's specifically meant to be wide color gamut, mm -hmm. uh, we work in P3 uh, because that's what we recommend to the outside world. Okay. And then in terms of, you know, getting started in the journey and converting your SDR brain to the HDR brain, um, how important are scopes and how, you know, how much do you rely on, say, internal scopes of, say, Resolve or, or other products? Or, and then how much should you rely on external scopes? Rick, to you. <laughs> uh, I knew I'd get this one. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I like uh, external scopes mostly because... Uh, uh, they are generally more full featured than what you get internally mm -hmm. on a on a grading system, mm -hmm. and uh, unless you just don't have them, then you then you use what you got. But um, yeah, I like to uh, I like to know where my picture is going, especially you know if you're going to exceed a uh, thousand nits and you're using a one thousand nit monitor, mm -hmm. your scopes can tell you if if you've got issues. You know, you might be clipping on the on the monitor, uh, but you can tell if, if everything's lined up properly on the scopes and you, you can have confidence in that. That's a, that's a really good point. And I guess to just before I turn it over to Greg and Shane on that one, Rick, do you find you, um, you're, as you're setting levels and trying to dial things in that the scopes are helping guide you, keep you, so the scenes are relative to each other and, Maybe you're, you choose like a 1500 nit peak. You're not going to go over that. Is, is that how it works? Uh, often. Yeah. I mean, it, it really depends on the show, but, but, um, you know, you, uh, you want to be able to, to know what's going on. That it was always a problem in, in the old days, you know, when you were, when you were bringing things up and you knew that you were going to be clipping at a hundred nits, you know, in gamma, mm -hmm. um, we have often gotten some of those those things back uh, that were mastered in gamma, and we have to convert them to PQ and and make um, PQ versions of them for Dolby Vision. Mm -hmm. The skies are purple because you you're literally clipping. You don't know how you're clipping. You just know that it's white, 
right? But but when you actually look at it, um, it's uh, it's the wrong color, and you you have to fix that. And so mm-hmm. you don't want to do that inadvertently either, because even though you're you're doing something, you know, that's that's also a problem for having um, having a, a cutoff. Let's say uh, four or six hundred nits uh, cutoff in your in your just uh, not your display, but in your yeah. uh, mastering setup on your on your grading system. Right. So you, you don't may wanna... not know what you're doing up there. Yeah, you don't want a, cl- a hard clip, say, or even a some sort of roll off LUT on your output, is what you're saying. Right. I, I think it's it's dangerous, and so uh, that the scopes will allow you to have more headroom and to keep yourself honest in that regard. That's great. Uh, Greg, to you on that one. Yeah, I, I mean, like Rick, because of a lot of the features, it's nice to use uh, external scopes. But obviously, particularly now in the, with the pandemic going on and people are doing grading at home. And so the internal scopes work quite well. I mean, you can certainly make sure you're not clipping or crushing blacks. Or, so, so uh, you know, I, I do both. Obviously, I use both depending on the situation. And yeah, I, I, you know, I've seen you guys work and, you know, watching, watching you and how you sort of look at uh, the midtones, where the midtones are sitting, where the highlights are going. It just, it, you're, you're confirming in two places. You're confirming on the monitor and you're confirming on what the scopes do. And it, you know, getting started in HDR, I think it helps you be more comfortable, right? And be more confident. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can, you know, you can use the scopes in that way to kind of say, well, is there more detail in those shadows? Can I get more out of the blacks or, you know, do I want to stretch those highlights a little bit more or compress them more? And so, yeah, we, I definitely rely upon the scopes uh, as uh, probably as much as I do the image on the monitor. And you're both of you guys, I should mention are, are, you have experience with multiple of the, of the color grading systems, but tend to work mostly in base light. And so you, you do like the external scopes with your base light, correct? Yeah. Although now, now that I'm working at home, obviously I'm using the internal scopes on both Resolve and base light and they work fine. Got it. I, I have, I have internal scopes on uh, the Resolve I have here um, on the premises. Right on. And uh, Shane, talk to us about your feeling on, on, you know, how important internal slash external scopes are to your, uh, you know, again, mostly research you do, right? Right. I think it's who you, who I'm working with is how I determine it as well as if the client isn't savvy or isn't, you know, they don't understand what's going on behind the screen. They're only looking at, I need to approve what I see. And then, then you've got something different going on. You can, you can use the scopes. You can use, um, I would say you'll be able to use the scopes to say, look, there are, that information is not blowing out. Um, what's what's blowing out is the monitor, and, and you can explain that to them. You can bring down the, the image and say, "Look, look, it's not clipping. There isn't a clipping there." But you could also use that in the opposite way as well. As it sometimes uh, inexperienced, um, you know, people looking at content who don't have a lot of HDR experience, they can get tricked by the image if it's really extremely bright. Even I can get tricked by the image if I'm looking at something and it's really bright. And I don't see the dark details and all of a sudden I'm pushing up the dark details and I'm, you know, really raising it up so that I can see them. All of a sudden when I make my 709 or render up my 600 nit, then I've got, I've got a little bit of stuff that I got to balance out there. 
And so you, you, there's something that you can do. You can look at the scopes and say, look, I'm really lifting those blacks. I need to pull that back down. Even though I can't see the detail, it's going to affect the downstream image. And you can use them in that way and balance those kind of decisions out um, uh, or go back and change the grid. I think scopes are valuable for that to even just say, look, here, you, you see this? Uh, you can't see it. And that's okay. It's because there's a bright object and that's closing your eye down. So you're not going to be able to see those blacks. Do you want them crushed or do you want them lifted? That's going to affect, ultimately affect your downstream image. Hmm. That's great. Um, okay, so we'll sort of shift now into, you know, we've talked about sort of the tools and how you get set up, your working space. You know, for, for the sake of argument, your timeline is, uh, you know, in a PQ space. You've limited yourself to P3. You've got your external scopes. You're really revved and ready to go. Where the heck do you kind of start um positioning these images. I mean, the number one question we probably get is where do the midtones sit, right? And where, where, how do I know where to place things? So as you sit with new colorists, you know, and I know it's dependent. I totally get that. Every show is different. Every scene is sort of different, but in just a general sort of sense, um, what's your starting point? What, what do you look to look for? Shane, we'll start with you on this one. I think it's the monitor that you have in front of you, you start with. I, I think that's the, the way to, for me, that's the way to start. If I've got a very bright monitor, then I can say, okay, I can move things around and, and maybe create an image at that point, a brighter image if I want to create a brighter image. Obviously, it's it's the client. It's going to be the client, depending on what they're comfortable with. Um, but if, let's just say the client says, go for it, you know, let's make great imagery, let's, let's push the limits and, and see what we get. Um, then you have a conversation about the overall story arc and the luminance arc of the whole picture. You know, what is what are the things that you can put? Can you put a lot of stuff up here, down here? These are the things you can do. And you talk to them and you educate them or you just inform them, hey, you've got some dark scenes and then a bright scene and then some middle scenes. How far do you want those separated? Do you want overlapping light? Do you not want overlapping light? These are the things that you can do. Does it matter to you? Does it matter for the story? And you have that conversation. I think as you become more educated in HDR and you learn that you can do these things, I think those things will be told to us as colorists. We really don't want any overlapping between these two scenes. We want these all dark. We don't want any overlapping on this beach scene. We don't want any dark levels in here, in fact. see a big space between there. But those are things that are going to be, um, I think, in time that people will get to used to, to using, and they're going to start telling us. Right now, we have to introduce it to them. Okay. And, and Greg, what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of, there are kind of three different things I think that help establish this. One of them, of course, is just the spec of your deliverable. Are you doing a 4,000 nit master or are you doing a 1,000 nit master? Uh, but then comes the, um, the aesthetic and what kind of, you know, what's appropriate for the story. Uh, and then another element that comes down to it is, as Shane refers to, the clients need to have some comfort level as well. So, you know, even if a scene is dark, um, uh, specular highlights or, you know, practical lights in the distance could be very, very bright. They could, you know, reach the peak luminous for the grade you're doing, uh, or they could be dimmer. So it entirely depends on, um, on those three things, I think. Well, that's a really good point, isn't it? That, you know, for the most part, you, let's say you're, you have a darker aesthetic show, um, and very much the midtones and shadow details can live very similar similarly to the SDR grade, right? But then you could explore just the specular highlights 
and and as you said, maybe practicals like candles or you know those types of things. And where do those highlights sit? And can those highlights actually have detail or color in them? Right. Yes, exactly. And in fact, to be honest, during the early days of this, when we were doing remastering of shows that had been mastered in SDR, uh, there were times where it was clearly, you know, everything was at 100 nits or below. Uh, and the only place that made sense to have anything go above was in the specular highlights. And there would be moments I would think, yeah, we should pop those a little bit so at least somebody could tell this is, in fact, the HDR grade, right? <laughs> All right, Rick, what about you? Uh well, for, for darker material, um, the areas that you can explore are, are the uh, kind of low mids and, and those areas. You can get depth and detail in the image that you couldn't get in SDR. And why is that? Just to, just to pause you there, because essentially the first 0 to 100 nits, are they not the same? But how do we get more detail in the shadows? They're not the same. The curve is different. Right, you're dealing with a gamma curve, and, and now you're dealing uh, in PQ. So you can actually uh, find detail and and uh, you know interest in those in those darker areas. Mm -hmm. And um, you know when you when you have to bring down gamma, you're you're really kind of flattening everything down toward the bottom, and and you don't you don't have that much distance between things, but you can get it in in PQ. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's a it's it's a much more interesting picture. In, in terms of Rick, where you know, it, I know there is no starting point for midtones per se, but you know, as you as you approach a new grade, say on an, on a normal outdoor scene, you know, midday, uh, is is there a a starting point where you feel you can place the skin tones and such? Yeah, it it really <laughs> goes with the picture for me. I mean, I can't. I, I wouldn't uh, say that, that that face needs to be at 100 nits, mm -hmm. right, or 60 nits or, or whatever. It just, uh, because you've got such, such range to play with, uh, it's a scene-by-scene -scene, uh, thing. You know, whatever's happening in the scene, that's where you want to uh, place everything. So it, it's pleasing to the eye, and right. it follows the director's vision and and uh you know gives them the aesthetic that they're looking for yeah and I, and I guess the clues that we get to try to figure that out on any given shot are how it's lit for one thing right i mean you you kind of tell from the lighting is this person in shadow and silhouetted more silhouetted or are they front lit or you know so those things and then in comparison to how things are lit in the background are kind of the clues that we go by, I guess, to try to figure out where to put that. But there's, yeah, there's definitely no hard and fast rule about trying to figure out where to put those. Assuming together. everything went to, went toward the plan in the, uh, <laughs> in the production, right? Yes. Like, exactly. Oh God, I don't have enough fill on this shot. So <laughs> yeah, you'll create yeah. that right. As you would with, with the color correction system. And, and then, yeah. And it's an opportunity for us too. It's an opportunity just for us to show them, Hey, look, you're looking for a little bit of punch. Let's pull this out of the, you know, out of their typical comfort zone, raise that way up, pull that and let them see it from where they came from and see it, you know, hit them and go, wow. Okay. Yeah. That actually helps the story that helps this moment uh, and, and let them decide whoever's in control of that image. Yeah. And, and I think that's a good part of what we do as we're trying to uh, bring somebody that's not familiar with HDR 
uh, to become more comfortable with it and to find out what it can do. You know, we might so we might do a grade initially that we think uh, matches what we've gotten from their notes or their initial you know instructions to us, uh, and then we might do some of these things that taking advantage of you know skin highlights or something with midtones and and then have that you know as a, as a grade that's bypassed and then say by the way what do you think of this you know we could do this to this and Greg that was actually my next question was you know as you um. It's, it's actually a two-part question, so I'll just throw it out there. You guys jump in on it as you feel. Part one is, um, and let's just say you're starting the work sort of unsupervised. You're by yourself. Um, number one is as you explore this content and you get started and you start grading in HDR, should you give yourself two or three reels on a six or seven reel movie to get comfortable because by the time, by the time you get to real three, you realize, you know what? I probably could have gone back and been a little bit more aggressive on real one and real two, but I sort of found my place in real three. So question number one is time. Give yourself a little time to get comfortable with the material. And then the second question is, do you back pocket, as I call it in your back pocket, have the more aggressive grade um, and then maybe a conservative grade version that you keep, you know, you keep them both. And which one do you show first to your client? <laughs> so your so, preference. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. That's totally true. Totally true. Good. Good. All right. So Rick, you start us off on this one. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you, um, generally when you see a mastering of, of a feature on television, the, the first reel looks kind of rough. Nobody really gets the the feel of the movie until they're in the second reel. Okay. I mean, it's, it's just a thing, right? right. So when, when you're in the second reel, you're going along, you go back and you look at the first reel, and you're like, I'm going to have to fix that. And so that <laughs> happens regardless of, of whether you're working, you know, in a high dynamic range or standard dynamic range. But, um, but yeah, you, uh, if, if you're going to work with a client, you give them, you give them your best shot first and, then they'll pull the reins back, and, uh, okay. and you know, you, or or and they'll then, let you go. And then by reel three, they, yeah, by reel three, then they'll say, "Oh, you know what? Maybe we could go back to reel one and go a little." Far. <laughs> and so, is you find that your your preference is the one that's usually has a little bit more aggressiveness to it, maybe a little bit brighter highlights, brighter midtone kind of thing. I think for me, I actually for me, I like the to push the envelope to show what's possible. And to show them, look, you can tell stories in different ways, and there are real reactions you can have with these light levels that are just not, you know, not typically used. And whether they want to employ those or not are up to them. But to show them, with you can't you can't know and make a decision until you see it and, and feel it out. And these guys are are really good at understanding what they're seeing and how they're reacting to it, and they're going to make a good decision at that point. But if they never see it, they're not going to be able to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and I think knowing that, your client too. Absolutely, right? Yeah, and I, and I think if you also can, if you have legitimate reasons to make those choices that support the story, and you articulate that, then you know often clients will say, "Yeah, that, no, that makes sense for the scene," or "Yeah, let's let's go ahead and look at it that way and see how that goes." Yeah, and show them the six hundred nit. Show them the six hundred nit. Show them that that hundred nit. What they what results out of doing this push at the top end, 
at your brightest level, quickly just do an, an, an analysis and then show them, say, look, this is what you're getting on the bottom end. Here's what you're getting at 600. And this is, and then they can look at it and go, wow, okay, that, yeah. Or no, let's pull that back. Right. All right. Well, we'll get to the Dolby Vision part in a minute uh, in terms of the analysis and, and that, that sort of workflow. Um, so in terms of, um, you know, maybe a tip, Greg, you mentioned practical effects and sort of lighting and things that can either appear too bright or maybe you didn't take advantage of them. You know, how do you how do you work with practical practical effects so that they don't become distracting to the actors and, and the, the key story points on this on the screen? Yeah, that one's that one's sort of difficult because it really relates so much to what the client, the creatives are. Or how they feel about it, right? So there's some people who, if there's anything in the background that's as bright uh, or brighter than, say, the face of the actor, they want that pulled down. They find that really distracting. And so, you know, certainly people, I think, who have a commercials background, uh, that's the case. Uh, and then others, uh, you know, sort of follow or understand more of what Shane was explaining about how the actual real world is far more dynamic range than what we're seeing on the screen. And so they're, they're quite accepting of very bright highlights in the background because they realize that's how it would look if you were standing there. You know, the person's face in front of you might be a little darker and the street light in the back is, is blowing out. So um, it really, uh, you know, my preference and tendency is to have those practicals and quite bright. Uh, uh, but I'm also prepared usually with a layer that has a uh, key or, uh, you know, ready to pull it down for the client if they, if it's too much for them. That's a great tip. So you're already sort of anticipating you're going to, you're going to, to Rick's point, you're going to find your starting point that you like, and then you'll yeah. have your, your key layer ready to pull it down if they don't like it. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Rick? Um, well, and it also depends on, uh, other factors like, uh, especially if you're outdoors, you're going to have uh, things change over time of day, and so you're going to you're going to darken skies and that sort of thing. Like the second half of of uh, our uh, piece, Lowrider, mm-hmm. um, one side was one direction was shot earlier in the day, and the reverse was shot later in the day. Mm-hmm. So uh, in order to marry all that up, uh, I had to do a lot of uh, sky work. Mm-hmm. Uh, in both directions, right? I had okay. to make the had to make the reverse skies a little brighter, and the and the uh, first shot uh, skies a little darker. So, um, yes, a, a key layer, and uh, sometimes a shape layer, and and all this sort of thing that, that you would need to uh, accomplish that. So, mm-hmm. so that's uh, another place where you'd uh, go there for that. Sure. Shane, how about you in, in sort of managing the world of practicals? And I know you, like you said, you'd like to be a bit more aggressive on what the HDR grade can be. And obviously practicals and lighting can really fit into that. I think it's up to the story. I think you have to look at the story and say, will this help the story? And and again, showing the, um, I always go back to going outside, looking at what lights are. Um, I actually will show a client Here's a here's an indoor uh, you know concert and there's a four thousand you know massive lights behind the the uh, the person singing and I'll stop it where the light they're standing right in front of the light and I'll say look can you see her face can you see the detail in her face 
And they, you know, nine, 99.9 say, yes, I can see the detail. I say, right, because this is working it out. Your brain is working those things out and you focus in different things. So the lights are not necessarily distracting. I think those are other things. At 100 nits, maybe they're distracting because you're working in such a small space. But when you've got a much larger space, those lights give you a different sense and your brain is already used to working those things out. So it you get a different reaction. Yeah, it's interesting you guys are really... Um... So much of it is how you deal with the client and the client interprets it and how you, you know, it, it, there, there's obviously a lot of back and forth here. It's not, there's no easy recipe <laughs> for making perfect HDR images, right? One other Wait. thing is that when we were uh, remastering all those titles for Dolby Vision, mm-hmm. obviously those, those were graded and we we're just putting them in the space for the most part. Uh, but you would find that that uh, the practicals were really bright, right? Because uh, the practicals, they knew they were going to be held back in the standard grade uh, to mesh with the environment. So uh, you always were were pulling practicals down mm-hmm. to to right. fit so, in the environment. So what you're saying, Rick, is if if they were shooting for an SDR delivery, that's where they knew they were going. And maybe those practicals would clip or, you know, fit nicely into that 100-nit container. Once you reveal that that same footage with its all its glory in PQ, all of a sudden it's extremely bright. Yes. And 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 out of place uh, oftentimes in terms of, of yeah. uh, how bright the room is, right? That mm-hmm. sort of thing. So you have to pull them back. Yeah, sometimes uh, you even have to ask the client, you know, now we can see a lot of the detail. We can actually see the filaments in the light bulb. You know, do you want that, <laughs> right? Or uh, or the lace curtains. Now we see the full texture of the, you know, and most of the times people are like, oh yeah, that's great. I love that. I'm glad we can see that. And uh, But it's something, you know, you've got to check with them about. And do you find that you have to sort of help people fight the urge to just clipping the highlights and getting that crushed blacks or the clipped highlight look? Right now that you ha- you can have all this detail, it it depends. Um, uh, for example, had a, we had a 10k in a doorway that was supposed to blow out on uh, <laughs> on a Red Bull <laughs> skateboard video. Uh, it was not wanted. <laughs> right, they didn't want to see that. So uh, yeah. so we had to find or a creative way to blow it out. Right. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't want to see the grip standing on the ladder next to it either, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that classic example where a 10k light is supposed to be daylight. Yeah, and yeah, SDR be, a sun. Is, be the sun, not an HDR. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess before we move on to the Dolby Vision metadata portion, you know, in terms of starting with the HDR grade, creating the HDR grade. Um, you know, any thoughts or tips you guys have? What is your key takeaway that you'd want to tell someone who's embarking on this journey? They're a good friend. You know, they're like, you know, they, they're they going to start with the HDR grade first. They might be a little nervous. They might not know. What would be the one thing you'd want them to know? And I'll start with you, Greg. Well, I think uh, my advice would be to begin with the HDR grade. And... I think uh, most colorists would be open to that, but I, I definitely know that there are folks who really want to start with SDR. That's what they're familiar with. That's what they know and they've you know they become efficient with. Um, 
And maybe their circumstances is at such high pressure that uh, they need to, to do that uh, in order to meet a schedule or something. But I really believe it's important to start with the HDR grade because when you do the analysis and you're going to do the trims and you've got the derived um, SDR grade from that, uh, there's so many benefits. You have so many more choices. Uh, you, you get to preserve highlight detail and black detail. You presume you preserve color saturation and highlights and so on. Um, and so you can end up with a much better SDR uh, derived. Um, but, you know, I understand that it's challenging for folks. It's new and it's something that uh, would make them feel uncomfortable or a bit nervous about uh, being quick at it. But I would assure them that you, you'll develop that skill very quickly. It will be, um, you know, just a matter of days but before you're like feeling quite confident. And then another couple of weeks before you say, oh, yeah, now I really know where I want to put this and so on. So that would be my advice. That's great. How about you, Shane? I totally agree with what Greg is saying is he's you want to start with the HDR grade because of how it lays in and all the choices that you can make. You can quickly make good decisions on contrast, where things should sit, and you get the most out of it. And on top of that, when you map it down to, say, 600 nits or 100 nits, then you can really see those choices pay off. And, you know, as we know, most TVs are 200 nits and above. And so when you're looking at that, that lower end, know that that's going to be stretched up. Um, and I think that people just get really excited when they start to see those HDR images on 600 nit TVs uh, when you make those choices first at, you know, your 1,000 nits or your 2,000 or 4,000 nit masters. Cool. And so, Rick, you know, you have two votes for number one key takeaway is be comfortable working with the HDR first. So uh, what is your what is your one main piece of advice for a new colorist in HDR? Well, um, yeah, I, I would I would prefer starting in HDR, you know, uh, theatrically. Uh, I mean, if you're if you're running a uh, if you're going to do a theatrical feature, start in HDR. I know we're not quite there yet with with all of the tools that we're going we're planning now and coming out with but uh mm -hmm. but the idea would be to start there and when you when you bring that to um to the home version you will start with the pq you'll put it in the proper space for for that viewing right for mm -hmm. you know 1, 1200 1500 nits whatever the the television will do one of the things you'll find when you're when you're doing uh, HDR first and then deriving your SDR is uh, if you have situations where there, there are uh, skies that are bright and have a lot of information in them, like in our fantasy flights um, show, right? Mm -hmm. There's, there's one shot where a girl is, is uh, at a box with flowers and out in the middle of the field and there's a bright sky behind her with a lot of cloud detail. Well, in the SDR, you're probably going to key that sky, right? Mm -hmm. In the HDR, you don't have to. You're, you've got the entire range. And the mapping software is going to make the SDR automatically have that information in it. So you're going to be doing probably less work. You know, you don't have to window that as mm -hmm. you would uh, if you were starting with SDR. And, and trying to translate that back to HDR you know, if you start off with SDR and you've done all this stuff to the picture, uh, you may be wanting to undo things that, that were done before Got to it. get a better HDR image. 
So is it safe to say then that, you know, in, in the world of uh, before HDR grading, you know, you had, say, a 14-stop image that you captured with the camera, but by grading on a six-and-a-half-stop system for SDR, you just couldn't see what was up here and you couldn't see what was below that threshold. And so you were sort of handicapped because you couldn't actually see all that extra information, but once you open it up and you can see it and place it properly, then the Dolby Vision mapping helps maintain it and complete it. Correct. So, I don't know if you can't see it. You could see that information. I think it's just that you then had to then do... Yeah, I mean, you can pull it back in and you just couldn't see it in all its glory. I think that's the biggest thing. You might be able to know that there's detail there, but then now you've got to go in and, you know... <laughs> a lot of <laughs> yeah they're, they're there because you're you're taking this squeezing it into that and trying to get all those elements back in the picture yeah but you basically have a bigger window that means you can you can really see it right from the get-go and sort of decide to shane's point on how it it helps your story or hinders your story and where do you want to place it right right yeah okay and in terms of time to create this HDR grade does is there like a rule of thumb let's say on a one hour show uh how much time you would spend doing this HDR grade I know that's probably not a fair question but I'm gonna ask it so what's your budget (laughs) (laughs) how how am I billing (laughs) am I hourly or am I per show (laughs) okay let's just do this then let's say compared to an SDR grade does the hdr grade take the same amount is it less is it usually faster is it take more time um i would say basically it's the same you know especially if you're doing a di shots are coming in you know the thing takes whatever amount of time it takes as as uh mm-hmm. pieces arrive right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then re-edits and and uh and all those sort of things so i, I think for uh, a production that's uh, doing their their first pass. It'll take the same amount of time. Greg or Shane, any thoughts on that? I think there's an advantage of, of starting in the HDR because, as I think both Greg and and Rick have said, you see more, and, and you're quicker to make the decisions, and you're you're able to quickly show where that image, and you can rely on the DP a lot more to say, "Look, they shot it like this. Here's what it looks like. There you go." And a lot of times you're not wrestling and having to kind of recreate what the DP is trying to to to, to capture and trying to say in that moment. Um, I, I think there's it gives you more time to make the image better or to do something that maybe you couldn't get to before. Yeah, you have more time to be creative, right? Yeah, because you can get where you want to quicker. You'll okay. see elements of the picture that you you wouldn't have seen. Uh, you know, it's like when um, Avid first came out. It, it was so low resolution that um, you didn't get to see the boom in the shot until you got into the color grading session. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. So. So, so there's that. You got to fix things. <laughs> Sometimes you got to fix yeah. things and like, oh, look at the cables. Oh, let's <laughs> throw a mat on that, you know, throw something on there. Uh, and so it, it, it does allow you to, to it, it kind of works both ways, I think. All right. So another non-answer. Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah. All right. So um, let's move on to the final step. Once you've completed your HDR grade, that's when the Dolby Vision process really starts. And um, so 
Let's just start with a high-level sort of theoretical question to you. What do you guys feel? Again, you're you're talking to your new friend, your old friend you've known for a long time. He's he or she's going to be a new colorist doing HDR Dolby Vision. They're asking you, why do I have to do this metadata? What's the purpose of this process to create the metadata? So, Rick, you're the first one on the hot seat. Oh, great. Okay. Uh, well, the the metadata is uh, is to inform the the downstream device as to what the look is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. That's basically it. So you create the metadata and uh, Walter are out there, wherever you are. Uh, <laughs> the dynamic metadata is, uh, is so you get the best out of, out of each, each uh, shot. Okay. And then um, we'll talk about how you create this dynamic metadata in a minute, but let's Greg, let's get your thoughts. If you're explaining to somebody the first time, why do I need the Dolby Vision part? If I just created my HDR grade, what are the, what are the Dolby what does the Dolby Vision metadata do? Right. Well, I would start and say exactly what Rick said just now, uh, and and add that it's also your opportunity in terms of the trims values to make sure that that artistic intent is kept both in the uh, 709 derived version, uh, but also uh, will be made to reproduce as accurately as it can on any other device downstream. Mm-hmm. And because nowadays there are so many different types of devices with di- different capabilities, it's important to have metadata to inform it, as you said, Greg, how to maintain the look or the artistic intent from that 1500-nit or 1000-nit show you did down to 200-nits, right? Or even 100-nits. Yep. So Shane, yeah, exactly. a- anything you'd tell your friend? Yeah, I think also I would start with both of what they've said, but I also say, you know, you're not going to expect to have the same kind of um, exact same kind of look on a thousand nit versus a hundred nit image. They're they're different brightnesses. There's different choices that have to be made, or that probably will be made. And what that metadata allows you to do, and just to spell it out a little bit deeper, is to say in this image, in this particular scene, in this particular image, I have now metadata to do things to it to better tell that story in that moment that I can't do with luminance or color over here. I need to do something different. I still need to tell that story. I still need to make that impact. But now I've got a tool to allow me to move that image around that may look different than this, but it's got the same impact. And I think that's critical that that they have those tools um, because it may shift away, like put more saturation down here because you can't pop it with highlight or with uh, luminance. Do something different, recontrast it to, to make it feel different in order to then better tell that story. And so it's not just artistic intent necessarily. It, there's a lot of tools to change that image to better tell that story, which ultimately is your artistic intent. Cool. And so in terms of dynamic metadata, that means shot by shot and... Obviously, it's very important to have a properly cut up timeline or an EDL to make sure that you're you're going to represent the shot correctly. Um, and then think about, you know, if you could, if you're again explaining to your colorist friend um, what Dolby Vision algorithm they should use for content mapping. Is it 2.9? Is it 4.0? What does the studio spec say? Um, maybe take us through your thoughts on navigating that choice if, if there is a choice to be made. So uh, Shane, I'll start with you 2.9 or 4.0 and what are your thoughts on, on the differences between the two? If I were to give them advice, I would say start in 4.0. Um, you have a lot more tools. You've got, we've listened to the artist 
through 2.9 and we've got feedback and we made 4.0 a lot more responsive in many different ways. We've added some tools that allow a lot more movement on saturation um, and hue to fix some issues that, you know, when you're translating from a massive color space down to a much smaller color space that allow us to do that more effectively and to really get that image. Um, and I think Rick had some ideas on, on some, some other points on that. Rick, you were talking to me earlier about that. Why don't you say what you were saying then? What if I could remember it? But um, yeah, <laughs> one, of, one of the things that, um, that you have with 4.0, the, the backwards compatibility is very good to 2.9. In fact, it's, it's uh, improved so much that sometimes, um, um, you know, certain things we've looked at, I, I think that 2.9 version is better than the original. Mm. Uh, and that's because, you know, we, we improved it. We improved right. uh, uh, that as, as we will. And, uh, you know, that keeps me employed. That's a good thing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I would always start with 4.0. Okay. If you had a choice in in the in the in the argument, you know, if the studio is accepting either four zero or two nine, great. And then, Greg, any any comments for you on your experiences with four zero two nine and and where you'd want to go? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the improvements that we made, particularly in the uh, analysis, uh, are make it a lot easier. I know that uh, what we experienced some frustration uh, early on with two nine uh, and trying to do the trims, and uh, because in that case we were actually matching to trying to match the 709 derived to a reference. And, uh, and so that really forced us to recognize uh, some of the difficulties in getting that same sort of curve often. Um, and that, you know, that's where we began to initiate feedback and show examples. I think we talked about that part one a little bit uh, about, uh, and, and the engineers worked on that and really improved it a lot. So um, yeah, if there is a, if you are given a choice uh, using 4.0 is you'll find a, easier for you that's cool and then as you sort of run the analysis on the shots and then you you turn on your cmu process either the internal cmu uh or the external cmu but you would you you then look at it mapping all the way down to sdr 100 nits rec 709 and what's your initial thoughts like when you when you sort of start that process of going ahead to do a trim, um, do you have like a game plan? Is there a specific, you know, like do you, maybe do you go to the, find the most representative shot of that scene, try to come up with the trim starting point and then copy and paste it across the scene? Or what is, what is your typical thought process? And Rick, we'll start with you on this one. Okay. Well, yeah, uh, I, I tend to, um, to look at a, the entire sequence and, um, and see, you know, from, from, uh, probably from the master shot, see how to trim that. And, and, uh, I might apply those trims. And then if you have any, any outliers, uh, anything with something, you know, that's causing the image to close down a little bit too much, like a huge bright window or something behind the subject. Um, you, uh, we now have tools in 4.0 that you can, uh, adjust the analysis point uh, in what we call L3, uh, in the metadata and, and fix that and then trim that separately. So that's go called, through and is that called mid-tone offset then as the control? It is. Yeah. Uh, on, yeah. 
It is on uh, Resolve. All right. You you essentially do what I sort of outlined, which is you you basically find the most representative shot, maybe do a slight trim to to really maintain your look, and then you copy and paste that to all the shots in that scene, and then you go through and maybe deal with any of the outliers that don't fit as well. Right. Cool. And Greg, what's your thought process? Yeah, I, I do the exact same thing, and uh, generally it wouldn't be for you know the whole show or the whole reel, but it would be. You know, you've got the interior garage scenes and the various coverage there and then exterior tennis court or whatever. So as I get into each new sequence, then uh, I would use that same technique. Okay. Shane? Yeah, it's very similar. I mean, I think it depends on how you approach the the grading. If you're doing HDR, then going back and doing the SDR. I know some colorists are doing HDR, SDR at the same time. Um, And in, in that situation... You know, you would you would begin in, and as you get to something that say as a as a challenging shot, you might go back and ripple that in, or try to match it, uh, match it back through. I think either approach is going to get you where you need to go. It's it, you have the tool, you've got the ability of, of of moving that image around to fit where you're trying to go a lot better than we had in two nine. Yeah, you bring up a really good point, Shane. Um, and so I'll go right back to you with this question: is in the world of you've just created this beautiful thousand nit HDR masterpiece, you've spent a week on it, and then you run the CMU, you know, the analysis and the CMU mapping to a hundred nits. How in the world can you look at an SDR image and be okay with that? Like, how do you manage that? And and sometimes, if, do you have them both side by side? You turn the HDR off. What is your thought process there? I think it's it's developed over the years. I think in the early days, I didn't. I really was like, "Ew!" You know, like <laughs> it's shocking. Ah, right, it was yes. shocking because you're like so used to this image, and all of a sudden, it just looks like flat. It, it looks like, did I do any grading at all on this thing? You know, um, I'm just kidding. It it takes time. It, it takes time um, to develop that sense of where this image is going to go. And I think it's critical that you also look at that 600 nit realm because that's where most people are going to see that image if it's an HDR representation of it. Um, if, again, HDR side of it, not the, the, the SDR moved in. And so for those at home following along, if you're not as familiar, you can change the CMU mapping from 100 nits to 600 nits and you can see the, the tone mapping occurring and again, 600 nits seems like about the average of most televisions on the market. Right. Or iPad Pro, for instance. <laughs> right. So. And I think you I think you become pleasantly surprised at how well it maps down and, and how well that image is represented there. Uh, so, Greg, what's your thought process on, you know, you have a client come in the room. Are you going to show them the HDR and the SDR simultaneously or make sure they only see one or the other and that they have a coffee break in between any switching? I usually try to encourage them to see, just watch the HDR alone okay. first. Um, but it's entirely up to them because I'll, I'll let them know that I can show them both at the same time with two monitors. Uh, and then um, some of them find it very difficult to do, actually. They get distracted looking back and forth. Some say, you know what, never mind, just turn that off, either the HDR or the SDR. Let me watch that for alone. Uh, first, and then uh, and then I'll have them. Usually by that time, they just want to glance at the other one and you know look at a few shots and sort of feel comfortable that it's looking how it should. Um, it's rare that anybody will sit through the whole show for both. 
unless they're right over at a time simultaneously. I did want to add something here on that, Greg, because I think it depends on the client too, because I brought in corporate clients and they are a different, that's a different breed. And a lot of times those guys are in those folks, I'll just say those folks, they want to see all of it. They want to see the hundred. They want to see the 600. They want to see the thousand all at one time because you know, it's a different approval process and they want to see if I'm delivering to that, I want to see it. I want to say yes to it. I want to, you know, and other, and other creative clients, sometimes say 4,000 and a hundred net, I'm good. You know, I'm, I've seen the ends, but I think as we get to do more user generated content and corporate and advertising, I think we're going to be, I think there's going to be an advantage of having every single version up there and being able to see those versions because someone's going to say, okay, if we're focusing on a thousand nit for this market, I need to see it. I need to compare it to the 600 nit for that market. And I need to know what the differences are. And I think that's the strength that we have in having the CMU, the external CMUs to allow you to see these multiple versions at one time. I just don't think it's so prevalent in the, in the creative industry right now, but I think it will. No, you're right. I think, I think it's your point is that the more advanced users get, you know, let's say this is our 10th Marvel superhero movie that we've done in Dolby Vision. We know the process. We're comfortable living in those two worlds. But for somebody new who just may not have grasped it, it's probably harder to manage all those things at once. Would you agree? Yeah, and I can uh, fully understand why there would be a difference with sort of corporate or uh, marketing generated stuff because they want to be able to compare and see what is the differences between them. Uh, and it becomes essentially almost like a full QC as well, not just a creative review. So, Rick, jump in. We've been waiting for you now. In, in the commercial world, you'll, you'll have multiple uh, approvals. But um, uh, I don't think they'll look at them all at once. One of the things we found when we were doing the uh, remastering is we would have the reference mm-hmm. and, and the mapped and the uh, HDR all at once. And um, that, that caused some early burnout with some of our <laughs> clients that were coming in to, to view this stuff. They, they, they just couldn't do it. And so um, it, it got to be, uh, I'll look at this thing and then I'll look at that thing. Okay. And, and it was less about the reference as time went on mm. uh, since you were usually using a, a graded thing. But, uh, but yeah, it's tough for people to concentrate on, on more than one thing at a time. And do you, do you ever feel that um, it's helpful to have a lunch break in between the HDR viewing and then the derived SDR viewing so that really you can sort of cleanse the visual palette? Does that help as well, a little bit of time and space? I think so. You know, okay. because you can you can sit through the movie like you're going to make all your all your uh, decisions on the HDR, and then you may want to go back and and redo some of the things in the SDR, and that they may happen on a same uh, different day, right, with the client. Right. So that's that's just fine. Right. right. I, and I think it does dependent on the on the length of the piece. I think that's a, a critical point of of action. Is if it's a very much longer piece, yeah, a break would be really good. But if it's like a commercial or a you know a corporate piece where it's much shorter i think those decisions and those those um uh, that ability of or that burnout is going to be a lot different um and i think that's something that we're going to start to see a lot more of as as advertising picks this up and um as the corporate world starts to take on these hdr deliverables i I think that's really going to change and Uh, commercial houses uh they're booked by the hour and uh you know Mm -hmm. if you're doing long form uh that's days that you're okay. that you're working with 
So right. when you get into the, the bay, you're going to you're going to make your decisions and get out the door and go to the next the so, next session you have to go to. In terms of wanting my SDR to look slightly different or maybe have some clipped highlights or things like that, how does the Dolby Vision trim process fit into that with this with this metadata and creating you know, can it look different in that sense? You can make it look different. Okay. Um, the one of the things that we found out when we were doing remastering is that uh, that the mapping was so good that it wouldn't allow you to blow out the highlights. <laughs> <laughs> right. It was it was maintaining the detail of the HDR grade and mapping it down really nicely. Yeah, right? and to sometimes to the chagrin of the client, you know, it's like. Well, I don't want to see that. And, you know, so, um, <laughs> you know, like uh, uh, I think it was Man of Steel. There was a particular sky that they put in that was intended to be blown out because they blew up the sky and it had big grain balls in it. And and uh, mm. and when that shot came up, everybody jumped, you know, it's like, oh, my God, uh, how are we going to fix that? And so uh, the the trim tools at that point didn't have a way to do highlight clipping. We do now, but but it's not a soft clip. So, okay. um, you know, we're we were still trying to get that to happen, but uh, but oh, you can blow things out now. Okay. Anybody else have a have a comment on making your SDR look different? Is that a? I like the idea of it. I like the idea that you're going to tell a story and have certain reactions at these massive nit levels, and then it's going to you know, go down and you're trying to create a reaction and you're, you just physically can't have the same reaction here as you do here. And these tools allow you to just take that into account and do something different with it. Um, I think it's a power. If you didn't have those tools, you're you kind of hamstrung yourself because you're going to be compromising both of these. You might be pulling this down and not getting the full reaction that you can. Um, and that was the world of 709, right? You're always compromising that image um, to, to deal with the, the range. In fact, the 4.0 tools do have so much more flexibility that you really can shape it. And and uh, because you can do a trim pass at 100 nits and you can do a trim pass at 600 nits if you wanted to, you have different levels of shaping for each one, right? Right. right. Yeah. Greg, Greg, any comments before I wrap up with a couple quick questions? Yeah, no, I think uh, that's true that, you know, now because you have um, these greater tools, uh, you would be able to make more of a distinction between what the 709 looks like and what any version of HDR in between might. Yeah. Uh, and so it does give you a little more creative freedom there if you really that's want to have something different. So this is kind of a curveball question, but we sometimes get it. So get ready. Put your seatbelt on. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, why... We, we've done all this work and we've set our Dolby Vision grade. We, I mean, our HDR grade. We, we've positioned it how we want it. Why do I need dynamic metadata? Why, why can't it just analyze it and map it? Why do I have to do this individual shot-based trimming and or you know analysis? I think if you take advantage of the range, number one, you take advantage of that HDR range, that when you map that down, then you're going to want to have control over that contrast curve. You're going to want to have control over where that contrast lives in that 709 image. And if you take just one mapping 
and one curve and you map it down, it's not going to be as effective for each individual shot, especially if you've taken advantage of and really worked in creating that image the where you want it and those those curves where you want them in the master image. Yeah, it's sort of like, uh, you know, you, you've created an artistic impression in the HDR and the analysis is trying to mathematically put it in what it thinks is the best place for it and often works very well doing that. But sometimes when you look at this new 70900-nit version of the shot, it creates a different feeling. And you find in order to try to get closer to what you were trying to make the person feel like or the emotional reaction or, you know, story point, um, you want to adjust it slightly. And you need to do, be able to do that shot by shot. Cool. Rick? Uh, well, before we had dynamic metadata and and uh, an algorithm, you know, to, to uh, analyze and, and trims to create the, um, uh, you know, the look that you really want. We had a static lot. All this started off with a static lot. And, and um, yeah, it looks okay, but uh, it doesn't have uh, the kind of, the kind of range you want. It doesn't reproduce the, the uh, curve that you really want. You want it perfect for every shot and, and every shot and every scene. And a, a static LUT doesn't do that for you. It just can't. Not with so many different devices to play back on, right? There's just so many variables on the playback. Even the initial, when we would look at it on, on the uh, PRM, uh, through, the, through the static LUT, the, the PQ to 709 LUT, and, and through the dynamic uh, uh, mapping, uh, it was night and day. Okay. Last question, in terms of, um, you know, the whole process and everything you're doing, you've graded on a professional monitor, you've done your analysis and your trims on a professional monitor, you've been using scopes. Um, what would you tell your friend, colorist, about how they could maybe use a consumer monitor in this equation? What, you know, a consumer HDR like an LG C8 or C9, what, what would you say could be useful to learn or, or utilize there in the process? Start with you, Rick, on this one. I know we're working on something like this, uh, but you need, to, you need to not be mapping when you're grading because you can chase the grade around mm -hmm. um, because the television will adjust to what you do. Okay. So what, what you really need is something that will uh, give you uh, pure PQ mode if you use the HDR10 mode, um, it already has a curve in it, and so it may not be right, mm -hmm. uh, even though uh, it, it won't chase um, your trims around. Uh, it's just not it's not optimal either. So well, so would you? But you you could use it. You I've seen you do use tunneling, in a sense to check your your final results in your mapping, right? Sure. But you're not grading. You're not live grading at that time. No, no. And, and I wouldn't do it just because okay. um, you can, uh, whatever, whatever level you're looking at on, on your C9, um, you might be making it look good there, but you go to another uh, television with a different luminance range, you may have screwed that luminance range up. If you're making trims while you're looking at the output of the C9, I get it. I get it. 
Uh, Greg, how about you? What do you? How do you feel about consumer monitors in the equation of a color color bay? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's useful. I think to just sort of double check or to give a client confidence, you know, to let them see how it will look at home on that particular kind of model TV. Um, but yeah, it's certainly not practical at all at this point to use those to do your real grading. Right. In other words, some people do use client monitor situations, but be very careful not to make grading decisions, color-based grading decisions on a consumer monitor. Unless that monitor, unless that monitor is going to be the monitor that you're going to play back that show, if it's, say if it's for a corporate piece or some other piece, unless you're grading directly for that piece, you know, that, that would be the, your one consideration in that, in that regard. Yeah, we've, when we've worked with TV manufacturers to actually grade some of their demo material that will only be running on their TV. And it's usually even model specific. Uh, and, and actually that, that's when you notice if, if you keep your regular HDR professional monitor on and you're grading to the television and you keep kind of glancing over what the, the actual professional monitor shows you, you can see that, yeah, this wouldn't, <laughs> this wouldn't work if I was to try to make this my primary grade for all uses. Yeah. Yeah. For some of our marketing stuff, uh, it was being done in vivid mode. There was no vivid mode right. on any professional monitor. <laughs> so so yeah, pretty dicey looking stuff. But Yeah, I think, I think to summarize, for most people, you should really only use a consumer monitor in terms of quality control as a final playback step. Don't do any trimming or color grading per se on it. Unless you unless your client happens to be the TV manufacturer and they want a specifically graded piece for that TV. That's right. Fair enough. Well, guys, I think this has been super fantastic. You know, you, you guys have so much experience and knowledge to share. And, um, you know, I really hope that uh, this has been valuable for our viewers to sort of learn maybe some approaches and things to, uh, to get started in grading in HDR and Dolby Vision. So thank you, everyone, for joining us and be safe out there.